Today's episode of the Business and Games podcast is brought to you by our very own sound engineer, Rowie AU. You can find him on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and anywhere else at Rowie underscore AU. Make sure you use him as we do for all of your audio engineering needs. Welcome to episode 005 of the Business in Games podcast, also known as the Big Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Mayers-Smith. In this show, we'll be chatting about anything gaming and technology, tackling the big and small business topics. Today, joining me, we have James Cohen, aka Jim Inesso. He's been in the esports scene for 15 years, previously working in business development for retail sporting stores for three years, and now part of Peanut Gallery TV, WPGI, and all under the Australian Esports Media Group. Jimmy, mate, how are you today? I'm fantastic, Chris. How are you? Yeah, pretty good, thanks, mate. It's good to be back in the studio after a little bit of a little bit of hiatus, and I'm sure you know how that feels. You know, with the sometimes real life gets in the way and travel and business, and especially with the amount of esports tournaments going on at the moment. I don't know what you mean by real life. It's, it's all esports life at the moment for me. So uh, yeah, just enjoying <laughs> that uh, ride as it comes. Esports through and through. So just touching on your on your role quickly with the Peanut Gallery TV and WPGI and the Australian Esports Media Group. Um, you know, some people might be a little bit confused about which one's which and and what you do within them. So do you think you could give the thirty second pitch and wrap that up? Yeah, sure. It's uh, I guess quite simple in that Peanut Gallery TV was founded by myself and PK. I think maybe a few of uh, the listeners might be familiar with him. We started as a commentary group, mainly servicing Counter Strike. From there, uh, we decided that it was time to create a tournament for women in esports named the WPGI. The acronym actually stands for Women Playing Games International, for those of you that uh, may be curious. And of course, our, uh, I guess, parent company is now AEMG, the Australian Esports Media Group. So we look to tie it all in under one roof. So yeah, it's it's been a long journey, but uh, it's certainly one that I've enjoyed. Yeah, it seems to be the case for for basically any esports business right now. It's a it's a long journey and and one that has a lot further to go. So I just wanted to dive straight into the topics. You know, we we will have some some guest topics as well for or, or guest questions for those people listening in later on when we do play this back. But I just wanted to kick it off with with something fairly generic. Um, just talking about you know how do you see in game commentators as of today compared to three years ago? You know, three years ago people like me were commentating. Um, just kind of like maybe a side business while I was running tournaments at the same time and and things like that. But you've seen just a real transformation these days into, you know, commentators suiting up and much higher professionalism and becoming influencers and, and streaming themselves. So, you know, as a commentator yourself and, and one person that, you know, contracts and hires commentators, how do you find the major differences? I, I definitely agree with the uh, the high levels of professionalism being demanded by the industry. It's interesting that um, three years ago, even from a, a tournament director's perspective, commentary or the broadcast was something that was marginalised or just uh, pushed to the side, not really given too much of a budget. But I guess nowadays it's, there's more of a realisation that that's actually where the value add for a lot of these tournaments and it's actually a main revenue driver, the the broadcast. And, and now... Uh, in that sense, there is that that higher demand on it to be the more professional product because that is simply now the product that is being put out to the audience. So I think uh, it, there's definitely been a huge turnaround in three short years and even in the last year or so that there has been a real uh, peak in uh, broadcast demand. So yeah, three years ago, I guess what we see today, what we see on Twitch, what we see on YouTube, practically didn't uh, exist in the form that we know it so it, it's definitely come a long way and I can I can definitely see it going further as leagues and um, broadcasters try and develop more value add in around their uh, their product and yeah there's definitely an em- emphasis now on being able to build content around the league and that's all going to be done through the broadcast through people like myself through other analysts commentators and it's, it's going to become a lot more like your traditional sports broadcast. Mm, I'd have to agree for sure. And, you know, I think one of the major differences as well is, is the is the real turnout for observers. And, you know, looking at, at some of the casts that, say, ESL do globally compared to the cricket, you know, they're able to play back things that have just happened. You know, someone gets a 4K and, and while, you know, while they're in the cool-down period or, or in their buy-up period, they're able to, you know, go back and, and show that through. Could you touch on quickly how that works from kind of like a an on-the-ground standpoint? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think 
there has been that realization that your observers, aka the cameramen of um, the entire operation, because 90% of what you see in an esports broadcast is the actual game. Uh, those guys are really telling the story. They're really dictating uh, what the audience sees, what level of insight they're able to actually uh, discern from what's on the screen. So from uh, on the ground perspective, there are, there are multiple uh, different factors at play. I guess the more that you want to add into the broadcast, the more manpower that you need, or alternatively, the, uh, the better equipment you need. But yeah, I think definitely there has been a shift towards uh, those one percenters now taking up a greater percentage of the broadcast. And I think definitely in Australia, as a, uh, a developing esports country, there, there's, a, there's a shortage of people with that skill set. So maybe that's a bit of a, uh, a shout out to people now who are thinking, how can I get into esports? Which, which avenues actually exist to me? There are definitely avenues available because the esports uh, market in Australia is certainly growing. And currently, there aren't really enough people with those skills to, to fill the gaps. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree. I mean, in in StarCraft, we had a guy for a while called Phil Bettino, who's who's was well known and, and used to manage a bunch of teams, and you know got flown to got flown to a whole bunch of different tournaments internationally to observing. But it's really, I, I feel like you know, as you said, the the in-game cameraman, they're really the forgotten piece in um in a lot of what's going on with this kind of stuff. But you know, I wanted precisely. to. Yep. Sorry. I was going to say precisely that they're, they're essentially um, what allows a lot of commentators to be able to give insight because they spot these these subtle nuances in the game. And I think without that, uh, without a good observer anyway, uh, a lot of you know key pieces of commentary and insight can be missed. Yeah, no, I'd, I would definitely agree. I would definitely agree. And and you know, ex- expanding on that a little bit, um, how would you say that your job role func that that your job role as a function is different to someone say in traditional sports? Let's uh, let's let's say use the AFL for example. When you've got people like Eddie Maguire who's doing commentary of of the live AFL grand finals or matches, how does that differ mainly from what you're doing in the studio and also live at tournaments? Uh, I guess in that sense, it would depend on the uh, the tournament itself. If it's something that we're running in-house at PGTV, uh, I'm definitely wearing a lot more hats than I would um, in a broadcast, for example, where I'm contracted to an ESL event. I'm simply just talent. I sit down, I put the headset on, I do my thing, I walk off stage. Whereas at PGTV, I'm wearing multiple different hats. I'm checking audio levels. I'm also making sure the observing is done either by myself in-house or uh, or whatnot. There is, there's multiple different roles per se. So I guess in terms of a traditional sports broadcast, uh, it varies quite greatly depending on the scale in which you're actually uh, producing the event. So I would probably liken uh, an ESL stage event, something maybe you've seen at PAX or even in their studio to something more of a traditional sports broadcast, whereas what we do on a smaller scale is, is very different. It's very niche in that sense because we're wearing multiple different hats in, the, in a single broadcast. Yeah, and and speaking about those those multiple roles, and you know, we were talking at the start, um, you know, just a little back and forward about about you know mentioning work life balance and and saying that everything is esports right now, and and this is a question that was asked by John Dudley on Facebook during a previous podcast that we're actually using for this one as well. Do you find that the high workload of your role is set by yourself, or is it demanded by the industry, or is it a bit of a fifty fifty mix? I definitely think it's a bit of 50-50. There are certainly days where uh, your, your role demands it because you've got multiple projects going on. The timelines for those run on um, similar projections. So if you need to be across a lot of different things on the one day. You don't have that opportunity to actually uh, set anything yourself because you're running to other people's deadlines. Whereas uh, I, I guess in that sense, uh, we do also set it ourselves um, as a commentator of Counter-Strike I do actually enjoy uh, doing my product research, aka playing the game or watching <laughs> um, the you know the other streams and, and watching the storylines unfold. So it is a bit of both, um, but I would say that compared to some other industries, uh, it, it's definitely a work-life balance that can be quite enjoyable, even if the workload is high. It, uh, for example, if I'm having to do research on another competition, yes, the workload might be higher, but I'm actually watching a VOD or a, a demo or something of the like to, to research. So 
it, it's not um, that taxing per se. Hmm. And and touching on that as well, it, this is something that we've said in many of the big podcasts before with the people that we've been chatting to. While the whole tech industry as a whole in Australia and, and specifically esports that we're talking about today is quite infant, you know, passion does come into quite a lot of it. And how do you feel the the business experience mix versus esports passion or traditional business is within esports? Do you feel that that in esports there's a really good role for, say, the boss to be someone with no experience but great finance or business background? Or do you think that the esports passion trumps or does there need to be a mix of a bit of a bit of column A and a bit of column B between the staff? I think there definitely has to be that mix if we're going to move forward uh, as an industry because I definitely think at the moment a lot of esports passion is driving the industry because there isn't a lot of money there in the sense that you're going to have people that are going to work long hours. They're going to be driven to their absolute limits for absolutely no pay. So they have to be passionate about what they do. And that's been the case for a long time. Now we're starting to see uh, some of the, the business acumen come to the forefront. We're seeing, for example, uh, investors coming and, and joining forces with that esports passion and providing uh, the business know-how, the knowledge, and, and pushing that further. I think it definitely needs to be that mix because otherwise you are, you're going to, I guess, run into a few issues because there might be patches where the, you know, the money's not coming in, but the esports work still needs to be done. There's still going to need to be people with that passion to, to drive it, even in the times where there are you know, no revenue streams. Yeah, and and chatting to one of my good friends the other night, we we had a big meet up in in Melbourne, which was just an informal kind of catch up, and you know chat a bit of business and and um, crack a couple of cold one with the boys, which I know is is probably your favourite saying right now, and many of us as well. And and you know one of the guys who came along, he's a good friend of mine, does PR for startups, and you know after a little bit of discussion, we kind of decided together that esports as a whole is a startup right now, specifically in Australia. You know you've got not a high amount of employees that are that are full-time but you know they're working a lot of extra hours they're relying on some capital gains or some you know some funding to come in and, and not so much traditional sponsorship so would you agree or be able to expand on that at all i definitely think um there is that startup mentality in esports at the moment a lot of people yeah as, as i said before are working long hours for very little uh, financial gain um, and we're also starting to see a lot of different avenues open up around this too. So I, I would definitely agree with that sentiment that there is that startup entrepreneurial um, environment in esports right now. Mm-hmm. Though that's going to be be changing because as we we now see with a lot of uh, startups, there is that outside investment coming in. There is that, that uh, business acumen coming to the forefront. And whilst it's um, in its infant stages right now. I don't think that's always going to be the case. I think uh, there's, there's room for big business in esports. Yeah, and, and touching on the, the topic we talked about previously, you know, you identified about esports passion being paramount and, and coming from an esports background in a lot of ways can can trump traditional business experience. How would you, or, or how did you go about transforming yourself from a player into a more business role? You know, we used to play against each other in, in CSGO many years ago during, you know, CGPL season one um, and, and such like that. So, you know, how do you, how do you find the transformation from a player into a business role and that's not something you see so much in traditional sports you know you don't see a football player retire and go you know I'm going to open a a main level or I'm going to own a VFL team now and and run that from start to finish yeah look I think uh, first and foremost we will publicly declare that we were both CGP standard yes so I think that that needs to be made note of but we were playing at the highest level uh, at least in the early infant stages but I think um, there is that transition um, more naturally in esports because there were uh, a lot of gaps to fill per se, whereas traditional sports is a little bit more developed in that sense. So a lot of uh, that esports passion for me, I know, uh, still existed even beyond my playing days and I still wanted to be involved in the industry in some way. And I saw uh, the business side of things, uh, particularly commentary, as just a, a natural progression and, and something that I could step into quite easily. So I think it, you know, it does differ from traditional sports. Not every person um, has the, uh, the skill set to be able to do that. But I think it does um, differ in some instances, for example, where lifelong sportsmen in, um, say, for example, your rugby leagues or uh, your AFL, 
they live exclusively uh, their, for their professional lives for football, whereas people in esports they do they can't sustain themselves as professionals. So they're you know they're doing other things. They're studying university. Uh, they're also wanting to to seek careers beyond esports because they're constantly being told that esports isn't a career. So I think in that sense, a lot of them are searching for a way to actually turn their passion, which is esports, into a career. So I think that's where a lot of the crossover lies. Yeah, I definitely agree. And and taking a look at, uh, you know, switching it around and taking a look at some people who, who have been able to do that, it's it's great to see that ex-players or current or current kind of casual ex-professional players are able to move into those sort of roles. And that's something that I definitely agree with your statement that, that has never existed in esports before and we're just starting to see now. You know, take Sponge, for example. After departing from Renegades, he's now able to sit as a as a you know an analyst on a lot of boards and, and commentating and we've even seen in a local kind of sense sniper do that for a little bit while he took a break and, and now he's back playing again with Atletico and in the Starcraft scene we've seen Jared aka Pig has kind of transitioned from a full-time player to doing commentary you know all over the world so it's it's something different and I would definitely agree with that statement what you're saying is that you know there's a lot of there's a lot of gaps to fill in esports but you know, you yourself transforming from a player into a caster, you you mentioned about the observer and the kind of unsung hero of, of a lot of these tournaments and there's a lot of things that they'd have to do that you wouldn't necessarily think about. But coming from a caster point of thing from a player, what are some of the, the key differences you think that you could that you could point out? Because it's not it, it's obvious to, to us maybe, but maybe not to others, that just because you're a good player and you know your strats well doesn't necessarily make you a good commentator. Yeah, precisely. I think I oh, will just quickly touch on the other piece there, where the young unsung heroes. A lot of people in uh, this this is true for many different industries, particularly for esports. And I think there needs to be some more recognition for the guys behind the scene. A lot of people will see the diamond, but they won't necessarily see the process that goes into refining that diamond and and mining it and making it that polished product it is so a lot of those one percenters those unsung heroes contribute to that um but moving to your question about uh transitioning from playing to commentary there are a few um differences and, and not everybody can just naturally step into that role i think in the sense um at least in my instance i think i was lucky because there was an opportunity there to do that and there was um a real gap in the market per se when I did decide to actually uh, step in and do some streaming, but it's not an immediate transition. Uh, a lot of uh, people will go into these um, commentary roles, particularly those that are more prominent in the scene in the sense of in-game leadership. Obviously you do see some similarities there because they, they're the brains behind the operation, or at least people typically see them as being the brains and the natural leaders of the team. So having them, you know, lead discussion, having them actually get their thoughts out is, is quite a, um, you know, a natural thing to expect from an ex in-game leader, but it's not always that easy. Being able to articulate your thoughts quite quickly, particularly if you're sitting as a, uh, a color commentator uh, next to a play-by-play, you only have about 20 seconds to di- dissect what's happening in the round or what's about to happen and get your thoughts across. So being able to articulate something quite um, succinctly and quite quickly to your viewer is a skill set in itself. Um, and it's not something that I immediately thought about when I started uh, commentating and I was lucky in the sense that I actually did have a few good mentors to bounce some ideas with, uh, off, sorry, and, um, you know, develop ourselves. And I think going forward, a lot of those, um, I guess, mentors are going to be more readily available now because there are more commentators in the scene. There are some greater experienced heads to actually uh, to get some insight off of. So I think for anybody that's looking to... Um, extend their career beyond playing there are multiple different facets there uh, that you've got to be able to do and it's not going to suit everybody's skill set but it's one of those things you definitely have to to try if you are looking at getting into yeah and, and opening the door a little bit more on this kind of topic and we could say comparing it even to traditional sports what are your views on a color commentator versus or a play-by-play commentator as sometimes they're called versus a real analytical commentator um, look, I think, uh, you know, there are certain molds that people like to adhere to with your traditional play-by-play and your traditional colour commentator. They do work quite well. They're proven combinations. I'm not um, saying, you know, they don't work or go against it. But I think um, I, I 
someone mentioned it on Facebook. I think it was one of the uh, uh, the questions about myself and PK. I haven't actually commentated with PK in a little bit, but when we did commentate, we didn't really have our traditional, all right, you're the play-by-player, I'm the, the colour commentator. We transitioned between both. And early on, we were given some advice to actually uh, just pick our role and stick with it. Naturally, we threw that out the window and decided to just continue on and keep with our dynamic, which was very... I guess our sense, in our sense, it was more cricket-style commentary. Uh, it was a bit more laid back. It was a bit less high intensity than than others, but more focused on the conversation and building storylines around that. So, look, I, I do agree it works in some instances, uh, but more importantly, for those looking to actually get into to commentary, you need to find a style that you're comfortable with and just stick with it. Don't try and be anybody else. Don't try and um, be something that that's uncomfortable for you stick with what you've got and develop that yeah and and touching on what you said before as well about you know you're looking at more of a cricket style commentary laid back do you find that that might be something that holds esports back a little bit where most of the commentators think they have to get in um, turn up their gain on their microphone to the max start screaming at every single frag that happens where um you know, we've seen this transition with players recently where, you know, you and I played, it was it was all about kind of yelling at people across the room and, and one thing that the Australians were great at and specifically the New Zealanders were were very good at um, within Counter-Strike Source and CSGO was kind of getting into the head of others. But you look at Australis play on stage now, you know, whenever someone gets a 1v3, they kind of bump fists and move on. So do you think that that's something that should change within esports or should just develop at esports develops or just let it run its course with the commentators, you know, being ultra excited versus just talking about the stats i think a lot of that is actually dictated by the audience to be fair uh some uh, combinations of commentators are favored over others for certain styles of events for example uh your dream hack events are a little bit um more laid back now than they they used to be well, actually to be fair they've always been very laid back but there was a period there where they did try and suit it up make it professional um and, and and go with the flow there but i definitely think that the audience actually dictates a lot of it so i think there's there's room for both there's room for you know those uh old uh, frag movie montage style yelling down the barrel of a microphone uh, um commentary uh, excerpts but i think as the game develops as the audience also nowadays actually demands a higher level of in-game knowledge our, our audience uh, particularly in counter-strike go is very educated in that sense, they, they want to know what's going on. They want to know why a certain player is doing this and how the strategy actually uh, plays out through the entire round and what you know each potential player is thinking. Um, as, as the game actually uh, develops through its life cycle, I think the, uh, the onus on the commentators and the expectation of the commentators to be able to, to get that message across and inform the audience more than they would uh, by just watching the match is, is certainly there. Yeah, interesting. And going back to just chatting more about uh, an overall aspect of, of Counter-Strike and, and esports and, and business, we had a question from at Smurphy underscore on Twitter, and, and he wanted to know, from your opinion, what time frame do you see the top three Australian teams being able to play CS full-time with livable wages? That's actually a really um, interesting question because I think it can go, it's either going to be fast-tracked or it's still several years away. And I think a lot of that actually hinges on the involvement of traditional sports uh, agencies or traditional sports teams. Uh, We've seen Adelaide Crows, obviously, get um, into Legacy and that's been able to, you know, obviously uh, provide them with some infrastructure to be able to facilitate that. Uh, Whether or not the, uh, the next... Uh, three or four teams that do seek investment from traditional sports teams obviously go that route. Uh, that will probably be the main determining factor, whether these guys actually decide to invest in that level of, um, I guess, uh, salary and, and infrastructure. That uh, will dictate how quickly um, things will move along. If not, I think without the involvement of the AFL and without the uh, involvement of other traditional sports teams, I, I, I'd probably still place this on a, about a two or three year timeline simply because I don't think um, the other important aspects of uh, infrastructure are there, namely uh, the uh, the investment um, in uh, more, more sponsorships, et cetera, but also the viewerships as well. You aren't 
uh, for strictly Australian events, they just um, at the moment simply don't demand um, that much of, uh, I guess, investment from from some sponsors to actually reflect what you could pay some of these players to live a full-time wage because at the end of the day, there needs to be a return on investment for these businesses coming in. And if the return on investment simply isn't there, uh, they're not going to not going to invest that amount of money. Yeah, exactly. And this is something that I've chatted some, to some people about off-air before that's, you know, that's been concerning with quite a few different brands and people within the industry that it almost seems like growing viewership is an afterthought for some people at the moment. And, um, you know, doing a little bit of mentoring myself and, and working with someone the other day, they were talking about, you know, seeking out investment, seeking out sponsorships. And, you know, some of the advice I gave to them was you need to have a bit of a step back and think about what your deliverables and what you can actually offer them. Like sure that, that chasing the investment from Adelaide Crows is, is an awesome thing, but are they going to be able to get the viewership back when you've got, um, you know, an ESL uh, Zen league tournament on at the moment, peaking at 1,800 viewers, which is great for the Australian esports scene. But, you know, you compare that to just a general uh, Adelaide Crows versus Sydney Swans AFL game. We're still, you know, a, a lot, a lot behind what they're trying to do. And we're talking about similar kinds of money for these kind of things. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with what you were saying. And, you know, it needs to be sustainable investment. It, it doesn't need to be, um, you know, I want to sell my team for a million bucks and walk away from the scene. We, you know, people like you and I have been around for a long time. You know, on my card here, I have, you've been in esports for 15 years and, and it's similar for me too. We really want to see the sustainable investment because we've had, plenty of companies come in before splash a bit of cash been promised a lot of stuff and then gone oh that hasn't worked out for me i'm never going to esports again and you know talking about this sustainable investments and talking about advancing scenes i wanted to take a bit of time as well to touch on the wpgo that you're involved in and um you know growing the growing the women in gaming aspect and and females in technology aspect with it too could you give the quick 30 second pitch about what wpgi is Definitely. Um, just going back on that uh, point before about investment is definitely there's a sense of the cart coming before the horse uh, in many instances. So, uh, but moving on to WPGI, I would, um, I guess, like to introduce the, uh, if you're not already familiar with it, as the Women Playing Games International. That's what the acronym stands for. And simply, um, it was an initiative from PGTV to create a platform for women to be involved in esports, whereas traditionally, there were no pathways in place for them beyond obviously what was available um, through uh, through regular means. So this was in uh, many ways an initiative to encourage more women to be involved because we find, and um, I guess the research also and, and feedback reflects that a lot of them don't get past the uh, the lower levels of the game. They get discouraged long before they get into a, a more professional environment. So we wanted to try and create a uh, professional environment at a lower level for them to actually uh, dip their toes in and get uh, more involved in the scene early on before they were discouraged. Yeah, that's that definitely definitely rings true. I think with like you were saying, the research shows and and just a bit of anecdotal evidence when you look at um, top CS:GO females, you know, uh, internationally playing. There's not a not a large pool of them. While the general stats say that women do make up a large percentage of people competing in gaming. So, what do you what do you identify as the as the main hurdles that you'd have to overcome with running something like the WPGI? Um, I think the the biggest uh, hurdle was uh, public perception in many instances because uh, there were a lot of uh, comments made about um, you know us wanting to promote equality and equality already existed within the industry. That was sort of the the main um, argument of the the naysayers per se. Mm. I think uh, as as the products developed, as things have gone on, there has been that greater general acceptance of this is a thing now, this is something that exists. It's not going away anytime soon. Um, so a lot of that has now just, uh, I guess, been pushed to the wayside. And uh, I guess some of the naysayers' arguments have changed, but I think we've achieved, in at least in the short term, our goal of establishing something uh, that exists for women to get themselves into the industry. 
Yeah, and, and expanding on that topic, uh, it's a question from, from uh, Chris from Jam Gaming on Facebook on the Oceanic uh, Business and Esports group. He he wanted to know about the current inclusions of female in esports and, and how the experience can be improved for them all round and WPGI's um, role in, in improving the general female population in esports. Yeah, I think uh, to Chris's question, it's all about creating a safe space for them. Um, to actually, you know, feel comfortable in contributing, feel comfortable in actually being part of the scene. And I think that is going to, to be very key for them moving forward. Whilst I can say that, um, you know, it is a process. Uh, we're still learning. A lot of the uh, people involved are still learning and there's a process of refinement. I think, um, you know, we're all about taking on board the feedback of um the players, the, the community, and improving the experience there. We're not going to um, stand and say that we've done a perfect job. I, I think most people can attest to that, that, um, you know, there has been a process of uh, learning and, and refinement, and it, it's a cycle that's going to continue long into the future. But I think um, for the moment, uh, the current inclusions of women in esports are still only a fraction of where we want them to be. We want this to, to essentially be down the track and, you know, an all-female product uh, right from, um, you know, the product on camera right through to the back end there where they're actually, you know, administering the games and, and running things um, themselves. This is, this is a process that uh, we want to see play itself out and we're still in the very early stages of that. Yeah, and, and one of the hot topics right now to talk about in the esports scene is the is the lovely word of ecosystem, and even within the tech scene with AMD pushing their mm-hmm. latest CPUs. So, how do you find that the current ecosystem in, in female esports has has changed after WPGI season one has been completed, and, and now we're looking down the barrel of season two? Do you find there's any major improvements or differences in the ecosystem? Oh, look, I think um, definitely would uh, say there has been some improvements. A lot of these um, all-female teams were playing in WPGI are playing in other competitions as well. So they're wanting to actually take uh, the team that they've formed, um, the friendships they've formed, and play in other competitions. I think that's uh, fantastic. That's a, a goal of ours actually achieved. Um, and and I would like to see that obviously uh, continue into the future. But... Um, Back to the the ecosystem per se, I think um, yeah it, it's going to be uh, interesting to see where it goes. I don't think um, we've sort of seen uh, the full life cycle of this ecosystem play out, and I think moving forward, it's uh, it's it's going to be um, on the back of where these players actually uh, want to take this because at the moment it's very uh, now, very much now community driven. We want the players to take charge. We've uh, put in place uh, you know, an all-female review panel that will uh, dictate the uh, the direction the league takes. So uh, it's yeah, it's it's an interesting uh, process. Yeah, and I would say that you know you, there's been a real uptake of teams bringing on you know female female only squads and and promoting this tournament and working in it. But you know I'd also agree with what you're saying is there's a while there's a while to go before the whole ecosystem can advance and and be pushed forward. But it's good to see that that there's some advancement and it's good to see that the people running it are you know actually thinking about the goals in the long term rather than you know what we were chatting about before with investors. It's really easy to get to get caught into the short term and and get caught up with you know chasing that one contract or or that next sign on so how do you as WPGI kind of plan out your advancements and, and what you're doing next in a whole once again an ecosystem aspect rather than just you know the game coming up next door the next season definitely uh, we've we've actually um, put in turn uh, in place some um, some plans around running four seasons a year for example we want this to be a year-on-year product that we can actually build on um, there has been um, some movement towards some international involvement as well getting um, some international women's teams involved in actually playing um, during the final stages and and branching this out to be more than just an Australian product we want this to, to feed into a wider ecosystem we don't want it to be just something that exists purely in australia for and there's only accessible to um women in australia we want this to be something that actually goes beyond that and feeds into something that is quite uh, quite a bit bigger than um, you know just something that's in our own backyard 
and the and the mentality of startups that we chatted about and and you know things about investing and and people being bought out etc how how do you as PGTV and WPGI see the role of investors in the current esports space and how do you find they differ from traditional sponsorship because that's a question that you know I've been answering a bit but I'm really interested to see what your thoughts are on this topic yeah, definitely. I think a lot of the uh, the investment coming into esports now is it's a bit of a mix. It is a bit of a mix between investment dollars, uh, for example, and venture capitals or existing businesses. But I think a lot of um, the investment and where the true value actually lies in partnering up with um, some of these businesses is using that business acumen uh, that they do possess. So we we spoke earlier about. Um, the esports market being very much an uh, an ex players uh, playground. A lot of the involvement traditionally has been from ex players or esports aficionados, and um, now having them partner with the uh, the business heads, the business side of things, and, and using that um, experience that they possess, that acumen, and um, partnering to try and expand on existing revenue streams in esports is going to be the way forward. So that's how I see a lot of these sponsorships moving. Um, a lot of these uh, people wrongly may be going into this thinking, you know, they can just cash up and exit. That's uh, probably the w- wrong way to look about it because I don't think you're going to get a lot uh, out of uh, those particular um transactions but mm-hmm. i think the real value for a lot of these investors and the people being invested in is leaning on that business experience yeah and, and chatting about that you're going to use that word that you said before business acumen and the and the experience that we chatted about there's a question that brad moore asked on facebook at the uh, oceania esports and gaming business facebook group it's a long one to get out uh, but he wants to he wanted to know and, and this is how I perceive the question is, is he wanted to know about the transition from the owners being the face of the, of the business to you transitioning to a business where you're releasing press releases and statements as a company. Do you find that it's a struggle for passionate employees and owners to, to move into that aspect and to not be so much just tweeting out your feelings and your thoughts and, and making Facebook statuses and such and going the more professional route of distributing a press release and statement? And do you think that's a sign of the new esports business to come? I very, I very much think that's a sign of um, new esports business or just business practice in general starting to, to creep into esports matters. Uh, it is like as someone that used to be quite vocal on Twitter, I think most of uh, people who would know um, of my history would know that you know I, I do like to say some, did like to say some controversial things. I did like to you know push the envelope a little bit in um, some of the, the thoughts and views and opinions that I had of um, how things were run. It is difficult to step away from that um, and actually, you know, sit behind um, this, uh, this this new business professionalism that um, is is coming into esports. It is dip- difficult to step away from that, but I think it's a process of um, professionalizing the industry. So I think it's a welcome change in that regard. Um, and obviously, from a PGTV perspective, it is uh, it is my baby, and I guess in some instances, it's difficult to. Uh, have a, a statement come out that isn't something that uh, you know you're directly projecting to the community rather your business is so mm. yeah it's it's going to be um, a process but i think um the uh the way forward is going to be through these sorts of statements it is going to be um a better way of actually addressing the points at hand rather than just a, a simple tweet or a, a vlog yeah, so moving away from WPGI and, and the Peanut Gallery, et cetera, who, who would you personally identify as both a team and then also a tournament to be a mover and shaker in the industry and someone to watch who's upcoming? Because you know, you've, you've made it clear that you do a lot of research on your on your scene and you know you like to keep eyes on what other people are doing to gather ideas for yourself and also push yourself forwards. Who are some of the lesser known people that you like to keep a close eye on? Uh, in terms of teams, um, I, in, I, I guess I uh, largely speak from a, a Counter-Strike perspective, but have had some involvement with uh, with Rocket League uh, previously. I, I'm glad to see that Rocket League actually has found its feet in Australia and uh, will be taken forward. Uh, that being said, though, in terms of tournaments, um, I'll, I'll touch on that first. I think Throwdown, actually, uh, is, is going to be one to watch. Now, if you're not familiar with them, obviously they... Uh, last season didn't run a full-scale CSGO tournament per se. They actually ran what they called a Pro-Am uh, format, which was uh, using the Facer platform 
the top players from that would be selected to then play in a pug uh, team with uh, some some top level players from immunity or legacy or chiefs whoever they were using for that particular season and or tainted minds as well and and integrating um the amateur players into you know a professional environment and giving them an experience i think that was a fantastic way of uh you know, a, I guess, making some of these professionals more accessible to the community. Uh, moving forward, I think their particular format with Counter-Strike is going to more of a team-based um, style. But with what they're doing, I think uh, they're going to be turning some heads because whilst they might not be as uh, you know as glitzy or as glamorous as, as the ESL tournament, which I still hold as um, you know the premier tournaments in Australia, I think what they're doing is building a solid base of fans who can engage with the product whereas ESL the tournaments are there but I, I don't think the same sort of um, fandom at the moment um, exists with ESL that being said though I think IEM went a long way towards changing that mm. uh, in terms of teams um, from a from a counter-strike perspective um, I would definitely say that uh, the Chiefs have you know Get stuck to the the format. They stuck to the plan. They've kept themselves you know, as a, a core four over the, the period of time. Obviously, as an organisation too, they are very uh, very successful with multiple different games at the uh, the top of each respective sport. Um, so, for me, they're the they're the ones to to keep watching if you weren't already watching them. But I mean, other than that, I do see organisations actually coming from within the uh, the female scene. Uh, Ravens, they're probably one to watch as well because I think those uh, girls are very switched on. They are very mindful of um, engaging their fan base, engaging um, with uh, with more than just the sponsors. So they're, they're an organization to watch out uh, for in the future. Yeah, and you did mention Rocket League and that's one thing that, that, that coming near the end of the podcast I wanted to touch on a little bit because both of us coming from a, a Counter-Strike background, mostly that's where our passion lies, but you can't ignore Rocket League and its its advancement has been absolutely well, like a rocket, funnily enough. Uh, it's it's you know grown it's grown so fast so quickly. How do you find the top level competitive scene of Rocket League versus CSGO? Does it have any major advantages over it or disadvantages? I think Rocket League as a game actually has a major advantage over Counter-Strike. Uh, reason being um, purely from a new spectator point of view. You don't need to be as educated with the meta or be in tune with you know, how the game is actually played because as a viewer, you can walk past, you can see the screen, you see that there's flying cars with rockets strapped to, strapped to the back of them playing soccer. It's a familiar sport for, for many people. They understand the concept and immediately from the get-go, people will have an affinity with it. So I think almost um, from the offset, they have a distinct advantage. I think what Rocket League do really well in that sense too is actually tying a lot of their sponsor messages quite well with uh, with their top-level product, the RLCS. So I think, um, for example, they've got obviously sponsorships with, I think it's mobile as uh, as one for an example. That's, uh, you know, it, it really talks to the product. Whereas um, I think they've also got Old Spice as well. They've got some some quite funny advertising going in and around that. So, yeah, I, I think Rocket League um, as a sport, as a, an e-sport, whilst at the moment I think in terms of tiers, it sits at about tier three, it's starting to push um, the boundaries. The RLCS, the top-level tournament, uh, peaked at around 200,000 concurrent viewers. So if you compare that to CS, it's still a while off. But CS um, three years ago, was uh, experiencing the same level of viewership. And I think Rocket League definitely has a lot of playability to it. So it'll get there. It'll be, um, you know, a, a few years off yet, but it'll get there. And for and for someone looking to enter almost any facet of esports, say owning a team, uh, being a professional player, you know, working working in the industry, what would you identify as some of the major roadblocks that people have to overcome before they're able to take on these kind of roles? Um, look, I, I think almost uh, from the get-go, uh, people are going to be expected to do a lot of work. Um, as we said, esports is 24-7. It never sleeps. Uh, I guess business is, is the same in that regard. But being prepared to do a lot of work for very little monetary return is, is something that, um, you know, 
you're obviously well familiar with and I am too, but for someone getting into it at the moment, there isn't a lot of money going around. So the willingness to be able to actually uh, put in that work and not expect, uh, you know, immediate uh, return um, is, is very essential because there is a lot of hype in the media right now, mainstream media, that esports is booming, there's cash flowing everywhere. That's not, not the case um, here in Australia, at least. So it is a bit of a longer grind in that regard. You're not going to see, uh, you know, immediate returns per se. But I think, uh, yeah, that's probably the, the strongest piece of advice that I can give to people is to be prepared for um, working for some longer-term gain rather than sh- some short terms. And, and what you talked about with the media talking about, you know, cash splashing around and we've seen like the 60 Minutes article recently which really tried to focus on money and it, we've seen some others internationally with, with different publications. I How I'd explain esports and, and money and who's getting it is very similar to how I described YouTubers uh, in some of my interviews was that there's a, there's a great divide to use a, a common term in that you've got some of the people right at the top, say someone like Fnatic who owns their own peripheral brand um, you've got very small amount of people in the midi- in the middle, sorry, who are kind of just scraping by, and then you've got an umpteenth amount of people right at the bottom who are fighting for two hundred dollar a month sponsorship contracts and things like that, and and that's the way that I identify it. And you know, right now in Australia, I think all of us are sitting around the middle and none of us are at the top yet, which is like you were saying specifically, that's a thing to see in Australia. But how how many years do you think or or maybe even more so because guessing time isn't isn't ever fun, what do you think the major changes are going to need to be within the whole esports ecosystem in Australia to see people like the Chiefs and Avant, uh, et cetera, having their own two-story offices and 20 employees and, and large sponsorship contracts? I think it's it's not going to be something that happens overnight. Um, as we said, it's going to be multiple different factors uh, all coming to uh, fruition. So, for example, we talked about the viewership being something that steadily is built over time and is something that is introduced uh, to uh, you know even mainstream media, um, but not uh, with, the, with this level of fanfare uh, that some people are hyping it up to be, something that's gradual, something that people understand and become accepting of. Um, I think also too, people um, will need to be patient in, in that sense, not um, also b- try and burn some of these sponsors for large amounts of cash early on. Um, that's going to turn them off eSports for a long time and you're going to just prolong the process um, because bridges are going to be burnt instead of uh, you know gradually built and mm. worked on over time. It's, it's difficult to say um, what, uh, you know, exactly is going to need to happen. I think a lot of it relies on infrastructure. Um, and I mean, infrastructure is a pretty broad general term in that sense. Um, I know you could d- directly relate it straight back to the internet infrastructure here in Australia. It is pretty poor from that um, particular standpoint. Um, a lot of the esports scenes at the moment are still quite localized. For example, Sydney seems to be the, the hub of esports at the moment just because infrastructure doesn't really exist um, on a on a national scale just yet, so um, you know there's there's multiple uh, factors at play in terms of um, that regard. But yeah, I, I think it's it's going to take a lot of people working together to get this uh, off the ground because uh, you you probably be familiar with this. A lot of people um, are wanting to take a bigger slice of a smaller pie rather than you know be content with uh, well, taking a smaller slice of a pie that there is is grown to, to quite a sizable sum mm. so it's yeah it, it's very much um going to be on the backs of good mentalities working together working together in business and um yeah a mutual trust in that regard yeah and i really run, wanted to resonate those two points that you're saying is you know point number one was trying not to burn sponsors for large amounts of cash and you know over promising under delivering and this is something that i chatted to one of my mentees exactly about the other day and you know waiting for the right time to start getting sponsors and not doing the old um you know i'm affiliated on twitch i'm suddenly you know going to contact all of these sponsors because the lasting impressions are a thing and if you start contacting people when you haven't got a solid business to push forward to them you know we're all human beings and in the future we're likely to remember you as that if you come and contact us and the other one that you mentioned too about growing the pie so you know one one thing that is up uh, is imperative in business is 
entering gaps in the market and that's something that you've said that that you and and some of your other business partners have done quite a few times how do you go about identifying these gaps in the market what kind of research do you do and and how do you know when to pull the trigger per se i think we've been quite lucky um in that regard that we were actually involved in the industry for quite some time and saw the gaps from the inside uh, so in terms of like, you know, the initial uh, movements from a, uh, like a PGTV and commentary and broadcasting perspective, we were in the right place at the right time. We had the drive and also the resources to actually go out and achieve something. So that particular gap was uh, a lot easier than, than others in terms of, you know, traditionally having to identify and research uh, something before you actually put a product out. Uh, from a WPGI perspective, we've also um, been fortunate enough to have uh, for a long time, quite a few uh, good female role models and friends within the industry. So I think, you know, acting on um, some of their advice and, and working with them over a long period of time, we recognize that uh, this is something that hasn't been given a lot of thought for a WPGI perspective. There's something that, you know, there is there is value in actually creating a product like this, even from, um, you know, obviously an opportunity perspective, a marketing perspective. There's, uh, you know, plenty to to be looked at in that particular regard. But um, yeah, we, we, I guess in that sense, we've uh, just been able to actually, um, as a result of being involved in the industry, able to tailor something to uh, an industry that we've been involved in for quite some time. And uh, wrapping this up, is there, how, how can people watch your work and, and follow what you do across all of these different mediums? Uh, I think we're probably most active um, on Twitter still. It's probably the most fun form of interaction uh, going around in terms of esports, getting people to try and uh, articulate themselves in 140 characters or less is uh, always entertaining. But you can find me on Twitter at Deep Impact. Yes, that is a pun. Um, or you can tune into some of the broadcasts that we do at uh, twitch.tv forward slash PGTV. Uh, alternatively, um, I don't really use Facebook, but uh, that's a bit more of a personal medium these days. And is uh, before we wrap this one up, is there anything else that you'd you'd like to mention to the audience or anyone you'd like to give a shout out to? Yeah, look, I'd definitely like to, uh, I guess, reiterate to our audience that uh, you know esports is, is not going away anytime soon. It's not going to be something that uh, you know just happens overnight either. It's going to take a, a long um, period of time of people working together consistently um, and and trustfully in the same space. You know, we don't need to step on each other's toes too early on in the picture because we're going to be around for a long time to come. But, uh, and yeah, I, I guess people need to um, be very mindful of the relationships that uh, they build now and into the future. But in terms of uh, the shout outs, I guess, yeah, the, uh, the other guys at PGTV uh, love the, uh, the work that some of you guys do behind the scenes. Obviously, it's the, uh, the diamond that everybody sees, but nobody really sees the, the coal mine or the miners behind the process. So uh, big shout out to those guys. They know who they are. Um, and obviously esports isn't esports without the uh, the viewer base or the fan, the fans, the people out there also creating content, giving us something to talk about, storylines to actually try and deliver to people. Uh, you know, you're all part of a, an ecosystem that is not complete just yet, but thanks to your hard work is starting to, to flesh itself out. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Jim. And thank you to the listeners for joining in on episode 005 of the Business and Games podcast. Who would you like us to chat to in the future? You can contact us at Business and Games on Twitter and also facebook.com forward slash business and games. If you'd like to chat about anything you heard today or anything else to do with esports, you can join us on the Oceania Esports and Gaming Business Group on Facebook. You can also follow Jim at Deep Jim Pact on Twitter, pun intended, and you can also follow follow me on Twitter at smithymayo or on facebook.com forward slash smithymayo. Once again, listeners, thanks for joining us in again for episode 005. 006 will be coming up in about a week's time, but bye for now and happy fragging.